John 1, 19 through 34. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with, the wa with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In the Gospel of John, John the Evangelist, the one who's writing this book, is building a case that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God who offers life for those who believe. And here at this section in the text, we're going to look at one of the witnesses that, the, that John the Evangelist calls to the stand, John the Baptist. John calls John the Baptist to the stand in order to make his case, which he's going to continue building. As you're reading through the Gospel of John, you'll notice the book, uh, the word witness. It comes up all over the place. Sometimes it's translated testimony, witness, testimony, same thing. Both of those words are making the case that John is making an argument, an argument that he summarizes at the end of the book when he says, these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. The whole book is focusing us towards that end. And John the Baptist is the first witness called to the stand. We've left the prologue behind. We've left the kind of theological discussion of the word, and now we're in life on this earth. John the Baptist, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the testimony of John pointing towards Jesus. John is a prominent figure in the gospel accounts. He's making straight the way for the Lord. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He is a humble figure in the gospel accounts. He is pointing all the glory to Jesus. He does this by taking on three roles. He has three roles in showing us that Jesus is the Son of God so that we might believe and have life in his name. The first role that John the Baptist takes is the role of preparation. Role of preparation, we see this in verses 19 through 23. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then are, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. 
So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So to begin with, John is going to say who he's not. There's an awkward sentence in here, right, where it says he confessed and did not deny but confessed. Right? That's a little awkwardly phrased, but the intent that it's trying to get across is that John the Baptist is making a positive confession. So he's denying things about himself, but he's denying things about himself in order to make a positive case about someone else. John is minimizing himself, and he's lifting up Jesus. This is why when he's asked, are you this person? He doesn't say, no, I'm that person. Why? Because he's actually trying to take attention away from himself rather than bring attention onto himself. So, no, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. No, I'm not the Christ. He's denying, but he's denying in order to make an affirmative case about the Messiah. Put yourself in the shoes of these uh, Jews who are coming to him from Jerusalem. Why are they concerned about what's happening with John? As we go back through the history of Israel, what's brought us to the point that we're talking about here? Well, going back uh, in history, God makes a promise to his nation Israel, makes a covenant with them. And in order to, uh, in order to receive God's blessing, they were expected to keep that covenant. At the heart of the covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see the teaching that there is one God. And it is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. There's no other gods. And so Israel, in order to please him, must worship only the one true God, Yahweh. But Israel falls short of doing that. All throughout the Old Testament, we have a series of accounts of Israel slipping into idolatry. I say slipping, it's more like running headlong into idolatry. It does not take many pages in the Old Testament to find examples of Israel's idolatry. In fact, if you go through the narrative parts of the Bible, starting with the establishment of Israel, the Ten Commandments, how long do you have to get from the Ten Commandments before you find Israel committing idolatry? Like a chapter, pretty much. Okay, so Moses gets the Ten Commandments. The next time he talks to Israel, they're already committing idolatry. They get into the land. doesn't take very long for them to start worshiping the gods around them. The kings come, and it doesn't take very long for them to worshiping the gods around them. All throughout the pages of the Old Testament, they commit idolatry. They worship false gods. So how does God deal with this? He sends them into captivity. First, the Assyrians come in, and the Assyrians take out the northern kingdom Israel. And then the Babylonians come in in 586 B.C. and take out the southern kingdom, Judah. And Judah is taken into captivity. Israel kind of disappears. We don't know where they, came, where they went to. They're taken in captivity and just completely annihilated. The southern kingdom's in Babylon. They're in Babylon for, for quite some time before returning back to the promised land. Once they get back to the promised land, they rebuild the temple. They reinstitute temple worship, and they worship God alone. They stop following after idols. From the Babylonian captivity onward, we see no more conversations about the idols that Israel are following. However, by the time we get to the New Testament, we find out that the religion of Israel in the time of Christ is not the religion that God had given them. It was not the relationship that he had demanded of them. Instead, they replaced that relationship with a new idol, the idol of their own ability to follow God's law. 
And so you get to this time and you can imagine the pride that Israel has. If you are a Pharisee, if you are a Jew at the time that this is being written, at the time, or rather at the time that this is occurring, you're living in Israel, you are, uh, you're a faithful Jew, maybe a religious leader. We know examples of this from hearing how the Pharisees talk throughout Jesus' ministry. And these Jews are very proud of the fact that they follow the God of the Old Testament. For the hundreds of years since the restoration of Israel, they never fall into idolatry again. There's a spectacular temple built. There's a beautiful temple built by Herod in Jerusalem. The, all of Israel comes to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. And there's a self-congratulatory feeling in the Jewish leaders as Jesus goes through his ministry, as Jesus preaches to them. They think very highly of themselves and their righteousness. They are not serving Baal. They are not serving Molech. They are not serving Ashtaroth. They are not serving any of the gods that they served in the Old Testament. But instead, they're serving their own self-righteousness. They have replaced the idols of their neighbors with the idol of themselves. And so, they're anticipating the fulfillment of prophecy because they think they're the good guys. Israel thinks, all right, we've done all the good stuff. So now there's a Messiah coming and he is going to conquer Rome. He is going to free us from our Roman overseers. We are going to be the nation we were always intended to be because we are good. We are following the law. And so you get someone like John the Baptist who goes out in the wilderness wearing funny clothes and doing strange things. And the whole nation starts hearing about this. And so they send out a group of people to talk to this man. They come out to talk to him, and they want to know who he is. But look who they ask. Are you the Christ? They're anticipating that he's the Christ. Are you the one who's going to restore the kingdom? Are you the warrior king that we're anticipating? He says, no. Well, are you Elijah, a figure that comes in at the end? Are, are you Elijah? Now, the, their question about it being Elijah is an interesting one because in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus affirms that John the Baptist actually is Elijah. He is the prophesied Elijah who's going to prepare the way. However, John the Baptist, in speaking of himself, never uses that terminology. What he's denying here is he is not biologically the revisiting of Elijah to the earth. Now, Elijah doesn't die, so I won't say reincarnation. Elijah is ascended up into heaven. He's not the return of Elijah physically. However, he does take on that role as Jesus applies it to him. But again, it is a role that the Pharisees, who think they're following the God of the Old Testament by their own self-righteousness, they're going to think Elijah would be their buddy. They're not like the prophets of Jezebel that Elijah fought against. They're not like Ahab. This is a new world, and they're good. And so if Elijah comes back, that's good news for them, they think. But John the Baptist says, no, I'm not him. They ask, are you that prophet or are you the prophet? Not, are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? You'll notice in your Bible. And when it says, are you the prophet? That's telling us they're referring to a specific prophet. That specific prophet is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18. And in verses 15 through 19, it 
says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is speaking, a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there's this prediction that God gives to Moses that the prophet is going to come. There will be someone who presents God to the people. Now, if you were here last week, Think about what we talked about last week and the glory of God being revealed in the word becoming flesh. We talked about that last week, how, how Jesus reveals the glory of God in a way that Moses could not experience. He could not look on him. And when he looked on his back, Moses came back to the people with his face shining. That conversation about Revelation, John just took us there about Jesus revealing himself to Moses. And now when we talk about Elijah and that prophet, John's jogging our minds back there again. Or when we talk about John the Baptist and that prophet, there's going to be someone who reveals the glory of God to Israel. It's coming. John says, I'm not him. I am not that prophet. So John the Baptist is not Elijah, at least not physically. He is not the Messiah. He is not the prophet. He's something else. And you can imagine if you're one of the Pharisees, you're one of these representatives of the Jews who's talking to them, you're getting a little annoyed at this point because you're saying, John the Baptist, are you this person? No. Are you this person? No. Are you this person? No. I mean, I would hope if someone came up, if I was going to someone and be like, oh, are you John? They'd say, no, I'm Jim. Like, they know I want to know who they are at that point, right? They, they know that that's what I'm going for. John the Baptist, nope, nope, nope. And so the Jews are getting dis probably getting frustrated here. They keep asking the same basic question over and over again. So finally, they're going to make it explicit. Who are you? Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You can sense the frustration. Who are you? We were sent to find out, and we have to tell them, or they're going to be mad at us. So who are you? What do you have to say for yourself? And John says... I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Interesting that he says, I am the voice so close and such close proximity to us finding out that Jesus is the word. So John is the voice. He is revealing something, but he is revealing someone coming after him. He's not revealing himself like the word reveals himself. John reveals someone else. He is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, as Isaiah said, and as we have read. That Isaiah text comes after a prediction of judgment and captivity in Isaiah chapter 39. In Isaiah chapter 39, there's this prediction, the captivity is coming, the Babylonians are coming, and the response then is comfort, comfort my people, the ones who are going to be taken captive, comfort them. 
says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you have ever sung in Handel's Messiah, you're probably singing as we read this. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. I'll spare you from my memory of, of singing it. Uh, the, there's this coming judgment, yet even in that judgment, there's comfort and hope. Comfort my people, comfort my people. Someone's coming and this voice crying in the wilderness is going to prepare the way of the glory of God. Again, jarring our minds back to what we talked about last week. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us and we beheld his glory. So the glory of God's going to be revealed. But John the Baptist is basically a road builder. He's a guy driving a bulldozer through the wilderness, flattening out the hills, building up some embankments here and there. This summer, we drove through Glacier National Park in the mountains, the most beautiful 30 miles I've ever driven. And this, it snows so much up there. It's, it's, the road, it's the road in the world that gets the most amount of snow that has to be plowed off of it. It's called the Going to the Sun Road. And you go across the mountains. Uh, guardrails cannot survive because of the amount of snow. Every time they build a guardrail, it snows and it just falls off. So you're above like 1,000-foot cliffs. And there's no guardrail. There's like a six-inch curb, uh, and that's it. And you're going through this road, but it's an engineering marvel that they were able to build it. It goes places that no road should go. It's, it's terrifying. There's spots where they couldn't get the whole side cleared off, so you kind of have to go to one lane, and there's all these cars going past each other. That's what John's doing. He's building a road. Something has to come. He's going to make the way. He's going to make the rough places smooth. He's going to make the mountains into plains so that the glory of the Lord can be revealed when the word becomes flesh. Some of those whom Jesus comes to are going to believe. Others are going to reject, as we saw in verses 11 through 12. But John is calling God's people to know that he's coming. What is John's message? Here he talks about a message of preparation. In other Gospels, it fleshes it out a little bit differently. It's a message of repentance. Getting Israel, these leaders who think they want the Messiah to come, and they think they want the Messiah to come as a conquering king, getting them to recognize you don't want a conquering king's Messiah until he fixes you. If the conquering king Messiah comes to Israel at this point, everyone is destroyed because they are unrighteous and they cannot stand in his presence. What they need is the suffering servant Messiah to come, the one who will die for the sins, the one who will point them to the Father, the one who will unite them with the Father. They need that first. And so John says, recognize that you, you need to repent. John points them at their inadequacy. John is calling on God's people to understand their need for a Savior. The Pharisees are the ones asking these questions. The Pharisees are thinking, we need someone to, to be on our team. We're the good guys. We just need a little help. John says, you're not the good guys. You need a Savior. The Lord is coming, and they need to be 
prepared. So John's first role is one of preparation. His second role is one of identification. Identification, verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Our first introduction to this group. Pharisees were actually a relatively small group in Israel at this time. Uh, they were the closest thing to Pharisees today would be a political party. This isn't like all of the temple leaders were called Pharisees. No, there were the, the Sanhedrin was the religious ruling body of Israel. They did not have a First Amendment. There wasn't a separation of church and state. So being the ruling religious body in Israel had included with it national power as well, governmental power beyond just the religious system. And this group, the Sanhedrin, uh, had multiple parties involved. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were more like the Republicans and the Democrats. The Sadducees were the liberal party, the Pharisees were the conservative party. And so it's, it's, a, it's different than a little bit than how we think. I think most of us kind of jump towards thinking of the Pharisees as being like a group of priests. They're actually more of legal scholars than priests. And so these guys, these religious conservatives, want to find out about John. They send uh, this delegation out to him. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Why are you doing this baptism thing? What's the point? Baptism happened at this point in time, but it was a conversion issue. When you converted to Judaism, you would be baptized as a symbol of your ritual cleansing. You were a Gentile, you were part of the unclean, but you have become clean, you have become a Jew, you get baptized to symbolize that washing. But John's baptizing Jews. And so the, the representatives of the Pharisees are saying, why, why are you baptizing Jews? They're already Jews. They don't need to be baptized to become Jews. They were born as Jews. John's answer is not what we'd expect. In fact, other Gospels record a different answer to this question with a different emphasis. But here he says, I baptize with water. And what would we assume when we hear the start? John, why are you baptizing? Well, I baptize with water, but... There's a different baptism that's not with water. But that's not actually the point that he makes here. He does make it other places, but not here. Instead, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. So John turns the attention away from the baptism and says, stop talking about me. There's someone else, someone standing among you who you do not know. John's baptism is one of preparation. And so when the Messiah comes, John's not focused on baptism anymore. He's focused on the Messiah. One is standing here among you, and you don't even know him. They came to see John because they thought he was the big deal. John's saying, I'm not the big deal here. There's someone else here. John knows that Jesus is greater than him. And so, why are you baptizing? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So again, John's saying, look at someone else. I'm not the point of my ministry. I'm preaching not to glorify myself, not to set myself in power, not to take authority to myself. I'm preaching because there's someone coming after me, and I am not even worthy of tying his shoes. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John identifies Jesus. Jesus shows up, and when he shows up, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He recognizes the work that Jesus has come to do. The Pharisees want a Messiah who will be the king. The Pharisees want a Messiah who's going to install a governmental rule, an independent state of Israel. But John says, here comes the lamb. Lambs are not kings. All right? if, if you want a fearsome creature, you don't pick a lamb. And all of Israel knows what is a lamb. It is a sacrifice. Here comes a lamb. Not a lion. Other places Jesus is called a lion. But John's emphasis is on their need for a sacrifice. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John not only identifies who Jesus is, but he understands the purpose Jesus came for. The Jews are waiting for a king, but they don't need a king. They need a lamb. They don't need someone to rule. They need someone to sacrifice. They don't know what they need. They think they know best. Parents, have you ever interacted with your children like that? You know better than them what's best for them? Hey, Let's take a nap because we're going to stay up late tonight. We're going to have friends over. I don't want to take a nap. I take a nap every day. I don't have school. I don't, I'm not tired. I won't be able to fall asleep. They, they go through all this litany of reasons why they don't need a nap. Why do I think they need a nap? Because I know if they don't take a nap, they're going to be an absolute basket case by the time they go to bed. They're going to end up getting punished. They're going to end up being miserable. They're going to be crying. Everyone in the house is going to be going crazy. I know, and they don't. I know what they need. Or how about after uh, one of the holidays that involves giving candy to children, Halloween, Valentine's Day, they come home and they've got a bucket full of candy. And in their mind, there is only one thing they need in this world, and that is to eat all of the candy that dad has not already stole because a child cannot appreciate a Snickers. Uh, so they want to plow through this bucket of candy immediately. And we say, no, that's not good for you. You will regret eating an entire bucket of candy tonight because we know what is best for them. We have their best interests at heart. John here, preaching a coming lamb, is saying to these uh, Pharisees, you don't need what you're looking for. You need something else. You need a sacrifice. You don't need power. You don't need earthly kingdoms. You need someone to take away your sins. John identifies Jesus to prepare the way. The third role that John plays is one of glorification. Verses 30 through 34. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Right? This first chapter of John has, all, has had all sorts of sentences like this, where something comes after that was before. Well, John is six months older than Jesus. So what's he talking about, that Jesus came before him? It's not that he was born before him. It's that Jesus was in the beginning. Verse number one, in the beginning was the word. So John says there's someone who has existed before I existed. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose they came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, I didn't even know who he was. They're cousins. Yet John doesn't totally understand who the Lamb of God is going to be, even though they're cousins. He doesn't get it exactly. Yet he comes and he is faithful to what God has called him to do. Nowhere in Scripture do we find out how John the Baptist knew he was called to do this, but we do see that he is faithful to what God has called him to do. And John bore witness. All right? So again, testimony. How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? 
The witness of John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So when it doesn't even record John baptizing Jesus in this text. It does in other texts. It doesn't record the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Those are not details that John the Gospel writer feels the need to include here for whatever reason. But... We know that when John baptizes Jesus, a dove comes out of heaven, it's, a, it's the Spirit, it rests upon him, and a voice declares that this is the Son of God. And so John the Evangelist, John the Gospel writer, tells us that John the Baptist gave a testimony. Someone who saw this. And certainly there were other people here as well. And what does John do with what he sees? He lifts up the Son of God. He bears witness. He recognized that Jesus ranks before him. The temptation of anyone in a unique position like John would be to take the glory to themselves. The temptation would be to, to get followers for himself. But John the Baptist does not do that. John the Baptist sees his role as being one of support. My freshman year of college, I took a class called Stagecraft. I was a speech major for a semester. And so I was uh, taking this class to, to learn how to do stage management, acting sort of stuff. And uh, as part of our assignment, they turned us into free labor. This particular college I was at liked to do that. And uh, so we had to be stage crew for that spring's production of the school opera. Now, I actually like opera, uh, but when you see the same opera every night for like two and a half months, it gets a little bit old. And my job was to sit on a catwalk above the stage, and there were these two, um, two halves of the set, and they, were, uh, they had three different sides to them, and they were on a pivot. And so when you change scenes, they would just turn these little, these little sets, and so you'd have a completely different set. And then they'd turn it again. But in order to do that, on the side of the stage, you, they had these... Uh, these uh, wing curtains and these were just so you couldn't see in the back but in order to spin it someone had to sit there and had to lift up the wing curtains they'd spin it around and then drop down the wing curtains if you don't lift up the wing curtains in time it spins right into them possibly tearing down the more than a thousand dollar curtain possibly destroying the set and all this stuff like i said i'd been watching the same opera for two months and during one of the productions i fell asleep <laughs> and I had a I had headset on that I was supposed to get my instructions and I remember in a haze hearing Q wings Q wings Q wings and I woke up and I got it just in time nothing bad happened my role in that play was one of support people should not have known I was involved in the production if they had known I was involved in the production, it would have meant that I had made a tragic mistake. And I would have been in a massive amount of trouble for that tragic mistake. That's what you get for having 17-year-olds do that stuff. Uh, but I, they, they, I, as a support role, am supposed to be invisible. John the Baptist embraces his support role. He says, this is who this is about. Jesus is the point of John the Baptist's ministry. He glorifies the Son of God. 
So John the Baptist plays three roles in the case that John the Evangelist makes. He prepares the way for the Lord. He identifies the Lord and he glorifies the Lord. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? We need to respond to the Messiah with repentance. Jesus, if he is not our Savior, is our enemy. If Jesus is not someone who we welcome as Lord and Savior, he's the Jesus described in the book of Revelation. Yet, in God's love, he makes a way for Jesus to be the one who reconciles us to our Father. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Even though he is God, even though he is the one who executes the wrath of God, he delivers us. So the response to Jesus is not to find someone who supports our worldview, who's like our buddy, who we can rely on in order to get what we want. In order to understand the role of Jesus properly, we recognize he is Lord and I owe everything to him and I must repent and I approach the Savior in repentance, recognizing that I am a sinner who needs saving, not a person who just needs an ally. I am the enemy of God. Yet, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We must recognize Jesus as our Savior and respond in repentance. We need to recognize his identity. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the Son of God. We must embrace him as God. These were written that you might believe and believing have life in his name. And then, as those who share John's work, we need to glorify our Savior. We need to be voices crying in the wilderness as well. We need to be declaring and pointing all glory to our Lord and Savior, just as John the Baptist does. John the Baptist knew his place. He had an understanding of who he was and who Jesus is. And so the question in front of us today is, who are you and who is Jesus? There are all sorts of false ideas of who Jesus is that turn him into our buddy, that turn him into the person who goes to war for us against the things we don't like, that turn him into the squishy side of God, the, the nice part of God. There's all these false theories about Jesus. But John, the gospel writer, and John the Baptist confront us with the truth about Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. But he is our Savior. So this morning I urge you, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you do not understand who he is and who you are, I urge you this morning that today is the day of salvation. As John, the writer of this book, said his purpose was, believe that he is the Son of God so that you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving us for redeeming us. Lord, we think we need a king who's going to go to war on our behalf, but in reality, we are the enemies. We are the ones who face the war if we do not approach you with the righteousness of Christ, with the righteousness of a suffering servant, a lamb who bears the weight of our sins. I pray, God, that everyone here this morning would recognize who we are and who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.